This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. This is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast. I'm Johnny Hart. Each week we're joined by an Oanda Studio Market Analyst from around the world. And this week we have Craig Earlham in London and Ed Moyer in New York. Good afternoon to you, fellas. Hello there. Good afternoon. It really is difficult to think of a more dramatic week in the history of financial markets, guys. We've had meltdown, turmoil, often overused words. Obviously, the world's going to get through this crisis, but the human and economic casualties at the end of this extraordinary experience are unknown. You're both relatively young guys. You probably weren't working during the global financial crisis, but even seasoned observers like me struggle to think of an equally traumatic week for markets. Ed, tell us what it's been like in New York, first of all. Well, it's been a third week of intense volatility, and I think you're starting to see uh, a wild realm of speculation on when are we going to see this virus start to show signs of slowing down here. The concerns are right now that you're seeing intense panic selling right now. And uh, when we draw those comparisons to the global financial crisis, back then we saw over a 57% drop from the peak to the trough of the 2007 high to the low of March 2009. And and there's lots of concerns that you're going to see a similar systemic risk to the outlook, and we're going to probably see uh, just continued uh, pressure on the markets. And, and everyone's trying to decide, you know, exactly how far can monetary policy and fiscal stimulus really do to slow down this sell-off and provide some confidence in the markets. And you're probably going to continue to see more concerns that the U.S. is going to enter a recession. It might be a, a short one, but um, albeit it's, it's going to uh, definitely deliver a hit to earnings growth forecast. And I, I think though markets are still somewhat optimistic that this virus is going to have a similar path to the modern era pandemics and typically they have a short lifespan so if we're looking at SARS the avian flu Ebola or MERS you know we could see this uh, start to show signs of fading in in a few more months and and if that's the case you're starting to see a lot of passive investors want to just start to scale in now because we're already about 30% off the record highs in the US and uh, there there's expectations that you know we could see some limited downside, but um, ultimately the snapback trade is still firmly kind of being priced in because you're going to have all this stimulus that has been put in place that will keep risky assets supported once the we're beyond the virus. Markets are ending the week, Craig, in slightly more positive territory. Is that for the reasons that Ed just pointed out? I mean, are there investors out there who are now starting to take advantage of this turmoil? and buying stock. I've kind of got to the point when I'm giving up trying to explain what's happening in these intraday moves because they're just absolutely mental. Um, I've just got a list of the last few days here up from the FTSE. Right? I mean, we've had three of the five days have had moves of more than 7%. So on Monday, we we down almost 7.7%. On Thursday, we were down 10.87%. Today, we're up 8.3%. These are, I, I can't really stress enough just how unbelievably extraordinary uh, this actually is. Yesterday was the second worst day ever for the FTSE 100 since Black Monday. Absolutely remarkable. So to try and explain what's driving sentiment is extraordinarily difficult. And I think ultimately what we're seeing here is we're seeing 
enormous panic. Probably the most drastic thing that's changed since yesterday is the Fed's liquidity measures, which I imagine Ed will probably be able to uh, add more colour on. They're literally pumping trillions of dollars of, into the markets in order to try and stabilise treasury markets. That's the, the most extraordinary thing. But then markets did bounce back yesterday, but the bounce back lasted about an hour. Uh, and then the Dow was right back trading towards its low. So I can't even attribute today's bounce back to that. I think ultimately we're just going to continue to see this extraordinary volatility in the near term. And the only time I think we're going to see a sustainable bounce back, and I might be wrong on this, I mean, these are incredibly difficult markets to predict, but I think we have to just start to see numbers improve. We have to see decelerations in places. We have to see signs that the situation isn't as bad as feared in the US, in the UK, in Germany. But the problem is we've got no signs of that yesterday. Instead, we've got Trump banning all flights from Europe. We've got the UK warning yesterday that this is likely to peak in 10 to 12 weeks and showing a chart, uh, a bell curve, and we are right at the bottom uh, of the part where the bell starts to rise quite dramatically. None of these suggest that we're going to get the kind of information in, in the coming weeks, which is going to provide calm for the markets. But one thing we do have is we do have China, which is a case in point of it will start to get better at some point. The figures from China as far as the coronavirus today are encouraging. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why markets have bounced back a little? Potentially, but I mean, like I say, I don't think we can really read too much into that because China is, while it is the world's second largest economy and it does account for an enormous amount of people, it's still only one country and everywhere else in the world it's accelerating. So it could be, but I mean, it doesn't explain 8%. I think uh, a big amount of uh, the focus is on the Fed solely right now. And when we take a look at their announcement of the new Treasury Reserve Management purchases, and basically all it means is QE4 is here. And it means the balance sheet is going to be well above $5 trillion by the end of the year. If you price that in, it's going to mean a, a much more a higher move in the U.S. stocks once the virus concerns ease. So the Fed is going to use all their bullets here. They're concerned because of the, the tightness in the, the financial conditions that is going to really affect day-to-day -day business. And they're also concerned about the deflationary pressures that we're starting to see. So the Fed is going to be highly aggressive here. Uh, they're, they're, they're strong calls. I know that, um, rate cuts are really not going to do anything, but it will provide definite catalysts once uh, things normalize as far as on the virus front. So it's still to be determined, you know, exactly when we'll see this kind of peak in the U.S. And unfortunately, uh, the U.S. has done a, a poor job in managing the testing, the treatment, quarantines, the uh, every uh, across the board, just on everything about the virus in the U.S. has gone wrong uh, in the handling of it. And, and you're probably going to see uh, the, the right measures taken, but it's ultimately going to be too late and we're going to see this continue to get a lot worse in the U.S. But there is that expectation that eventually this will peak and the punch bowl is just overflowing and investors do anticipate that you're going to have reasons to be invested in U.S. equities because if you take a look at how we were, how the economy was before this, the financial system was pretty solid. The economy was high and uh, you know, once we get beyond the virus, then you'll 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 see uh, not necessarily a V-shaped snapback, but I think you'll see a strong move back into equities. And you're seeing some people try passive investors right now. The, the top managers, uh, BlackRock and Vanguard, are noticing net buyers. So you're you're going to be seeing that probably even if we see another 10% sell-off in the coming weeks.
I think the important thing here is you are going to see people coming in, and I completely agree with that as well. I think come the end of the year, we're going to be looking back at these kind of levels and say, wow, these were hugely, hugely discounted. Therefore, you are going to have people who are going to be trying to dip their way back in. The only thing is you've got to have the stomach for it because while I am firmly with Ed that I think by the end of the year we'll be much higher than where we are now, it could also be much lower in a month's time, so that's always going to be the difficulty with this. Ed, I know you have to go now, so we'll... uh speak to you again very soon do take care over there and hopefully this time next week when we speak again things are settled down a bit more always a pleasure thanks for having me that's ed moyer in new york there back to you craig and let's talk about oil many people see a big fall in oil prices as a positive thing but the drop was so huge markets were spooked by that weren't they it's amazing to think that that was four days ago this has been such an eventful week that it's amazing to think that 30% drop happened on Monday. Uh, now, this obviously came from the oil price war. We were talking last week, actually, obviously, in the podcast, and we were talking before the actual announcement, any announcement was made. But I remember reading out a thing saying from uh, from Russia that they basically don't, aren't interested in uh, in a uh, another cut. And we were saying at the time, this could be a manoeuvre to try and reduce their burden. Or it could be a bad sign, uh, a sign that, that no deal's going to happen unless Saudi just takes up the bulk of everything. And it seems that no, nothing's happened, that no deal, obviously no deal happened. But what's really interesting is I, I didn't see this coming. I didn't see this turning into a full-blown price war. I didn't think that, that Saudi Arabia would have the appetite for a full-blown price war, given what incentive it has to keep oil price high. Now, obviously, they're playing a longer-term game. Why does Russia want to get involved in a price war? We can only speculate, right? It's not like we've got Russia coming out saying, we're happy to get in a price war because of this. There is suggestions that what this is to do with is U.S. shale, effectively. Every single time OPEC and or OPEC Plus cuts production to keep prices elevated, what, you're effectively, what they're effectively doing is uh, helping feed the oil boom in the U.S., the shale boom. And they are enabling uh, many shale companies who are heavily indebted to continue to pump out oil on an increased scale. The speculation seems to be, and it makes a lot of sense, is that Russia have effectively grown tired with aiding the development of the US shale industry. So their, their idea is, let's accept lower prices for now and let's put some pressure back on the US. It's also worth noting as well that the cost of uh, production for Russia is much lower than uh, it is for Saudi Arabia because we've got to remember again, Saudi Arabia uses the oil revenue for uh, for fiscal measures. So for Saudi Arabia to be fiscal neutral, I think it's around $80 a barrel, whereas with Russia just to be uh, cost neutral, it's more like 40 to $50 a barrel, I think. I think it's actually closer to $40 a barrel. So they can afford to go through a sustained period of lower prices, more so than Saudi Arabia can. Uh, Whereas with the US shale, I think it's around $50 a barrel. This is part of Russia's ploy uh, and a reason why they can afford to do this more so than Saudi Arabia can. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why Saudi Arabia has ultimately doubled down, because if they didn't double down, what they'll do is they'll sustain oil prices at a level that they can't afford, but Russia can. So by doubling down, they're effectively putting the pressure back on Russia. Obviously, like I said, that's all speculation. But it's mean it's been another incredible week. Oil prices opened down 30% on Monday. We're still trading back towards the lows. Brent crude just shy of $35 a barrel. As you said, it fed into the uncertainty. It fed into that really dreadful day on Monday because you had oil stocks obviously getting absolutely uh, smashed um, uh, and it kind of reverberated throughout the rest of the market. And it's just really fed into this kind of really chaotic 
uh, week that we've seen throughout the markets and not just we, we the focus is always on equities but you look at the oil markets and a, a lot of companies felt the pain particularly obviously the natural gas oil etc and amongst all this craziness we had the small matter of an emergency interest rate cut from the bank of england a full half a percent from 0.75 to 0.25 and interesting that the eurozone's central bank failed to cut interest rates although it did pledge fresh stimulus measures and that decision by the ECB was criticized by quite a lot of analysts around the world particularly in Europe uh, let's start with the bank of england um you said to me off air earlier that that interest rate cut hasn't really made much of a difference. What about the ECB's decision not to make any cut? So, with Bank of England, I can't, I can't even remember if we... It, it has, really has been a long week. I can't remember if we discussed this on the podcast last week. I, but actually, was... I actually predicted that Mark Carney would uh, would uh, have an emergency cut and you poo-pooed the idea, of course. There was, ru- <laughs> there was rumours circulating that it would be a kind of coordinated yeah. thing with the budget, uh, and that's exactly what it was. And it was explicitly so as well, which is quite interesting, because most of the times you, these things are kept intentionally apart but it feels yeah. like they've, they they've, were very open about the fact that they wanted to do it in a coordinated uh, uh, manner uh, and one which kind of one kind of supported does, the does, other. I mean, you probably don't sense. know the answer to this, but does Mark Carney, you know, have a conversation with the Chancellor of the Exchequer? Because, I mean, I, you know, apparently it's meant to be completely independent, but does he actually ring up and say, we are going to cut the rates by half a percent? Uh, before the budget. Oh, I mean, you'd think so. I, I imagine there's a lot of discussions that do happen between the Chancellor, the Exchequer, and the Governor of the Bank of England. That doesn't mean that the Chancellor, the Exchequer, is telling the Bank of England what to do. So he can't have They still have a then. monetary policy committee. Right. Um, I can't imagine that uh, Rishi Sunak is telling the Bank of England, you need to now cut interest rates by half a percent. You've probably got conversations going on going, saying, Rishi Sunak going, we need uh, expansionary measures. We also need to support the economy throughout this coronavirus outbreak. And, the, and Mark Carney is saying, well, we actually, the board agree that we do need to cut interest rates and we probably need to do it before the meeting. So what can we do that complements each other so that we get the maximum bang for our buck effectively? And that's probably the type of conversation that's happening. And you, you can understand why some people may say that's blurring the lines between monetary policy and fiscal policy. But I actually just think that's clever to uh, say that we both agree that something needs to happen. So let's just maximise what it is that we're doing. So, yeah, it wasn't necessarily enormously surprising. The timing, of the, I thought the time of day was probably one of the more surprising things. The there must have been a reason why they decided doing it before well, it was, the it was market early, opened. Wasn't it? Yeah. it was seven a.m. So mm. doing it before the market opened was obviously it seems to be the reason. It was a why. message, really, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that came as a bit of a surprise. Then the rest of it just kind of followed too. Uh, the markets had priced in a fifty basis point cut, though, so. There was a lot of volatility in the in the aftermath. The pound fell around uh, one cent against the US dollar, but then it rebounded really, really quickly, and that's because it was fully priced in. So the timing of the rate cut wasn't as important, I guess, from the market perspective as the fact that it was already priced in. That didn't have a great impact. Whereas you talk about the ECB, for example, and this is the funny thing about the markets, I always find, is that the ECB did very clever stuff. They focused on lending to small businesses. They focused their efforts on TLTROs, uh, which is far more effective at a time like this. And we talked about this last week. Interest rate cuts are there to short the markets effectively right now, maybe ease credit conditions uh, where they are starting to tighten. But really, the, the real measures that are going to have be more impactful in terms of supporting the economy is going to be alleviating the pressure on small and medium-sized businesses as far as funding is concerned. So the TLTROs is aimed at doing that, the quantitative easing as well. But the markets just became obsessed with a rate cut. A rate cut that was going to make no material impact, uh, be, uh, impact in terms of the euro area euro economy. A rate cut which is going to push them further into negative territory by 10 basis points, uh, just effectively, just, ju- just because. Just because... Just 
markets are obsessed with the idea of rate cut. So even though the ECB did sensible things, the, the, the euro rose in the aftermath of this because they didn't cut rates. Uh, and, and it's just as simple as that. Like I say, the markets don't make too much sense at times. And that's one of the areas where I think that that was just stupid. And on that same topic, there is now the risk that in two weeks' time, we're going to see the same from the Bank of England. Because the Bank of England now has interest rates of 0.25%. After the financial crisis, they said that 0.5% was the low bound for interest rates. And below that, then you're starting to add risk to the financial system. Then after the Brexit vote, they said we can probably cut to 0.25%. But then we can't go any lower than that. Then you put piling risk on the financial system. Uh, and we don't want to do that. So we'd rather use uh, bond purchase. The markets, uh, yesterday when I was looking at them, obviously it's worth noting that uh, the measures for these do disagree uh, quite considerably now, more so than they normally do from platform to platform. But Reuters yesterday was pricing in a 100% chance of uh, another rate cut from the Bank of England at the next meeting, taking it to zero. That strikes me as being an odd move because if 0.25% really is the lower bound, and maybe it's not, uh, but if 0.25% is the new lower bound, then you're effectively putting the markets in a position where we're just going to see a repeated ECB. The Bank of England may announce further measures at the meeting in two weeks' time, but I I feel like an interest rate cut may be unlikely uh, given what they've said in the past. Again, these are extraordinary times so never say never Mm. but it it seems like they're pricing in something which isn't as likely as the markets are now currently pricing in actually that was yesterday I've now brought up a chart and it's back down to 18% Mm. if that's not indicative of how unbelievably wild these markets are I should have probably checked that before the podcast actually rather than while I'm talking but if that's not I mean that's indicative of exactly how incredibly crazy these markets are I guess these are unprecedented times. I mean, if you compare anything to the GFC, even the Wall Street crash, etc., of the 1930s, is it getting as bad as that? It's we, just We different. haven't really talked about like- people's jobs. I mean, there's some news just in the last few minutes that British Airways will plan to cut jobs. Because with the global financial crisis, a lot of people didn't really understand it. But when it comes to this, when you look at how some of the sectors are going to be decimated and we don't know for how long particularly travel sector talking about something like 50 million jobs going worldwide when it comes down to real people's jobs and the effect that will have the domino effect that will have on the global economy it's actually quite scary isn't it it is. And this is where the measures that have been announced by various governments in order to try and support these businesses, measures that have been announced by monetary authority, is going to be so incredibly important. For example, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in the budget, one of the measures was a billion pound in funding for loans for small and medium-sized businesses. How uh, are they going to administrate uh, that, though? It's and this, And therein lies it? the problem. That's, that's yeah. where my scepticism comes. It's not from the intention. It's the... How easy is it going to be for small and medium-sized businesses to access that funding? Is it going to be enough? Is it going to be sufficient? How do you deem what a good company is as the government when you're administering these loans? They're not banks. Like, the government is not a bank. Maybe some uh, form of tax rebate? I mean, would that and be this the difficult. I mean, the business rate side of what they did is clever uh, because that provides immediate relief. But only for some sections of the community, right? Exactly. There is obviously going to be some that will, will miss out. It's the loans that uh, I find difficult because that this is probably the thing that's going to actually keep many companies afloat. I know you mentioned the airliners, but it, it goes much deeper than that. Like the, 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 yeah, yeah. the example that I give, the, the kind of the easier example that I see. So, for example, Oanda, uh, we are now working from home in, in London uh, as of today, uh, not for any reason apart from it's just preventative. It's just a case of we don't need to be in the office right now, so let's not take the risk. We'll just yeah. work from home. We can work from home. We've got these measures in place. Let's utilise them and stop people having to come to the city every night it's that straightforward 
so I always say, like, what about the local coffee shop? They rely on people coming in. So if no mm. one's in the office, this isn't just Christmas where you've got fewer people, and this is going this is going to be potentially a prolonged period. And this is during a period where they normally rely on the income, whereas Christmas you maybe so not in so real much. terms, these guys who uh, are earning money, you know, they have the to overheads pay, don't go away. They have to pay their rent, or, yep. or you know, if they're lucky enough to have a property, their mortgage stuff. Yeah, uh, and you think, well, how would you administrate that? And at what point do you step in? So when people were patting the government on the back after the budget, mm. uh, and it, did, it was an expansion budget, it was a very... We haven't even got to the budget yet. Um, and it, like, it did have a lot of... It, there was a lot of it that sounded very good. Uh, but ultimately, the, you, it's going to be impossible to judge it now. We have to judge it in six months' time because it's not the ideas which is going to make it a good budget. It's the effectiveness of what it does and whether it all works as it should in order to actually do what it intends to do, which is support the economy. That's one area where I think it's going to be really, really interesting. The same from a monetary stance. This is why when people have become obsessed with interest rate cuts, I'm like, can we focus on what really is important? What the Fed did yesterday was important. Injecting trillions into the, the system in order to stop it effectively collapsing, that's important. Um, the term funding scheme from the Bank of England, that's important. The TLTROs from the ECB is important. A 10 basis point rate cut just isn't. I want to mention the budget a bit more, though, because you know it was actually quite a, a good performance from somebody's only been in the job for four weeks, uh, Rishi Sunak, and may- maybe it is irrelevant because this was probably the most expensive, well, certainly since uh, one of the Gordon Brown budgets early on uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Blair government. But how relevant is it? He was talking about, yes, the money's going to pour in to help the effects of the coronavirus, but the other stuff, the infrastructure project, to be honest... It doesn't really matter at the moment, does it? Because we don't know where we're going to be. The, I mean, the, I there, there needs to be another budget, in a way, in six think, months' well, time. That's what, that's what they've said they're going to do. They're effectively going to do three budgets this year, effectively, where they're going... The focus of this one was on the coronavirus, but the infrastructure and everything, that is also going was to be... Was that all irrelevant, kind of what, what he said after his first ten minutes? Not at all, because this is what the, the economy... It's the intention. Needs. It's the intention. You're, you're sending a signal of what a post-Brexit Boris Johnson government is going to do. It's not going to be your typical Conservative government. We're going to stay within our new fiscal rules. Uh, that I'm, I still don't even think we know entirely what they are. Uh, we're going <laughs> yeah. to stay within our new fiscal rules. We're going to hope the UBR don't downgrade our forecasts uh, and, and, and spoil the party. And we are going to try and grow our way out of, uh, through the coronavirus, we're going to try and grow our way through the Brexit negotiations, the New Deal, our, our, our new future. And we're going to do it not just deregulating or anything like that. We're going to spend money on infrastructure. We're going to do what people have been asking us to do for a long time. And I thought that one of the kind of symbolic parts of the budget was filling potholes. Everyone complains about potholes because it seems since the financial crisis, they've just been popping up and not been getting filled. So that's kind of one of those ones that really matters to people who travel to work every day, who see the potholes. It's just a sign of that they're effectively saying the coronavirus is important, so we're going to devote all of this time to this. But also, we are a different Tory government than what you've been used to for the last 10 years. And that's what the message to transcend whether they turn out to be that again it's a five-year thing so we, we judge them over the five-year period it's weird you just alluded to brexit I and mean, i've completely forgotten about that so we used to talk about brexit or donald trump now i just want a quick word about that brexit chances are we will get an extension to the transition period because they've just cancelled a meeting uh, and negotiations haven't they or are they going to have some kind of remote meeting and donald trump who hasn't performed particularly well during this crisis could work against him with Biden looking like the guy he was going to be up against. Donald Trump has not had his finest couple of weeks. You want to find the balance between 
making people aware, putting preparations in place, and doing what you can to prevent the spread, right? Mm. The best way to do that, ultimately, is to tell everyone to go home and not come back out for two weeks. But you don't want to do that because you don't want to destroy the economy just for the sake of it. So you've got to find this balance between wanting people to take it seriously, minimising the spread, but also not creating mass panic. And it feels like Trump has focused far too much on the latter and not enough on the Beginning former. of the week, it was just a bit of flu, right? Exactly, and he was literally comparing it, saying there was this many deaths from flu last year, like mm. everyone needs to calm down. And it's like, what he's effectively saying is, I don't really understand this. Uh, and the problem is, I don't think he cares that people think he's stupid because I think there's an awful lot of people who are saying the same thing. He's not the first person to say that. Go on Twitter, a lot of people are saying these idiotic things. Uh, so he's saying things which he knows is provocative, he's saying things which he knows is incorrect, but he's kind of just... He, he, he's saying it to effectively justify his position and uh, because he's chosen that the latter is more important than the former. I mean, this is a, this, he, he has spoken a lot about the stock market as well, like, what a great t- time to buy. And uh, <laughs> I don't want to just obviously sit here and just name drop, but Ian King was in the office yesterday filming from the office uh, for Sky News and he highlighted that Donald Trump just over a week ago was talking about the fact that it's a great time to buy and there's no need for panic, it's a great time to buy the Dow. And the Dow was down 17% at the moment at the point that he made that from a week earlier. It's no surprise that he's been criticised for the handling of this because he's been far more concerned with the stock market drop and the potential economic consequences and the effect that this could have on his election campaign. Far more concerned with that than actually handling handling the crisis at hand. Regardless as to what he says, you know, however stupid, the fact is that we are more than likely to go into a recession right now. And just a few weeks ago, we were saying it was all timed so nicely in November for Trump. And we've got Biden in there as well. Safe-ish pair of hands. It looks like he's definitely going to get the nomination. So not the best time for Trump. Uh, I mentioned Brexit. I don't really want to talk about it. But do you think there's going to be an extension to the transition period now? I'm not sure, to be honest, probably, but I don't think anyone's going to blame it. And I think this, people are going to be far more understanding with coronavirus than they would have been under other circumstances. There's the old saying, and it's time to whip it out again, it's it's the economy, stupid. Most people are saying if the economy's doing well, you get your re-election. If, the econ- if you're in recession, there's a chance that you're going to get booted out. And the reason why we were saying in November that there's no chance that Trump loses is because the economy was booming. It would seem very unlikely that he was going to get booted, and you were looking at the people he was potentially facing, you were saying they're not really great competition. So now it looks like you could go into an election campaign in recession with the stock markets in bear market territory. From his perspective, that's the worst thing that could happen going into an election. That said, I do think the coronavirus is an outlier. And I think everyone knows about it. Everyone knows what carnage it's causing. So I kind of feel he may get a free pass compared to what past presidents going into an election with, uh, with a recession and uh, bear markets uh, in stocks. While Biden has had an incredible week or two and soared ahead of Bernie Sanders, knocked out the competition, and it really does help that he's got the backing of Michael Bloomberg and all his spends. And I was listening to another podcast, um, and I think it may have been from the uh, BBC. They're effectively saying that one of the ways that uh, Michael Bloomberg managed, uh, and apologies if I've picked the wrong podcast, there's a lot of them. Um, and I think they said the one of the ways that Michael Bloomberg managed to hire so many people so fast and so so intelligent to do all his data, scrubbing, etc., was because he guaranteed that they would have a job until the election regardless so when michael bloomberg's effectively saying i'm going to back uh, I'm, I'm i'm going to back joe biden he's not just talking financially all those staff yeah. are effectively now biden stuff um and if that's the case then that is going to obviously help his help his chances along with the economy and along with the stock market 
Right now, though, I still see Trump getting re-elected because I still think that there's many people in America who voted for him last time who who, who are going to give him a free pass on the coronavirus. Uh, and therefore, I just don't think Biden represents strong enough opposition. Before we let you go, of course, um, we, we may not get the chance to speak face-to-face this time next week. We'll certainly do it. Uh, down the line but uh, a lot of people are going to be in self-isolation by then or at least the idea is that people should uh, just work from home strange times indeed this is not just business and economics and markets this is humanity is a very very worrying time for us all but uh, we really hope that we will come out of it are you optimistic craig yeah i am at the end of the day this is a dreadful thing that we are uh, seeing uh, and uh, soon to be experiencing. We all saw the the bell curve that um, uh, in yesterday's press conference, and that we are very much right at the just about to start the rise higher, the, the rise up the uh, roller coaster, as it were. But we've seen China, and China is now coming out the other side. That we are seeing, we've seen uh, a period of deceleration in the number of cases in China, and we're seeing the same in Italy. And now people are working from home, so we may not have to take such draconian measures here because people are taking preemptive measures. So mm. rather than, so like I say, next week I'll be working from home, like everyone else in my office, preventative measures. So this is going to be the the way that we try to tackle it. It's going to get uglier before it gets better, um, but we can only hope that all the efforts that are now being made not just by government we always look to government but it's actually companies who are probably going to make the biggest difference Oanda's decision to tell everyone to work from home is not a the government's forced them to do anything this is the the company that said work from home let's try and prevent uh, anyone getting it so hopefully we're talking not next week i imagine but in a month we're just saying we are through the worst fit the light is at the end of the tunnel and we can all start to slowly gradually move on with our lives and hopefully the carnage hasn't caused too much problem okay well we wish you and your family well be safe and speak to you again soon cheers From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am, listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.